the Jesuit Schools Network Ignatian Inquiry Podcast and our fourth episode of the 2022-2023 school year. The JSN seeks to be a supportive resource to our member schools, and this podcast is designed to be just that, a carved out space to listen, learn, and engage with issues that matter to our collective work as Ignatian educators. We're eager to encourage a spirit of inquiry across the many layers of our work in Jesuit education. We envision our particular brand of Ignatian inquiry to be the art of inquiry as seen through our Ignatian lens, asking questions and exploring issues that matter in our schools through the frame of our shared Jesuit mission. On today's episode, we'll explore the findings from the doctoral dissertation research undertaken by Dr. Sonia Ariola, principal of Bellarmine College Preparatory School in San Jose, California. Her study, entitled 50 Years of Underrepresented Student Advocacy at One Jesuit Secondary School, investigates what true inclusion looks like, how school culture changes over time amid cultural forces in society at large, and ultimately how Jesuit schools implement and grow support for marginalized students. Learning from the history and traditions of one of our schools, this research encourages school settings across the JSN to look closely at their past as they move forward to embrace the full potential of their future in tending to the needs of the students in their care. Dr. Ariola is serving as Bellarmine's principal for the 2022-2023 academic year. This is her 17th year in Jesuit education. She joined the Bellarmine community originally in 2006, spent four years as the president of Sacred Heart Nativity Schools from 2014 to 2018, and returned to Bellarmine in 2018 to work closely with Bellarmine's president on the school's priority initiatives. She recently earned her doctorate in Catholic Educational Leadership from the University of San Francisco and holds her undergraduate degree from Stanford University and her master's degree in education from Harvard University. Dr. Kristen Ross Cully, JSN's Director of Inquiry and New Ventures, joins us for this conversation on such an important topic. Dr. Ariola and Dr. Cully, welcome to the podcast. How is everyone doing today? Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's wonderful. It's there's a little break in the rain from uh, what we've been having here in California. So there's blue skies, and I'm delighted to be with both of you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen and Sonia. It's terrific to see you. I'm really excited for our conversation. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. You know, it's hard to believe that you're already into the second semester, right? I mean, <laughs> where has the here we are in the new year? Once, you, of course, everyone knows in schools. Once you get to January, you start thinking about the summer. It's very, very true. We started, <laughs> we sometimes say that uh, the semester feels like it's over already, but um excited. There's a lot of good things to happen second semester. So a lot of good things uh, to look forward to. Terrific. Terrific. Well, you know, I think the very first question that I have for you when I think about your research here is you're an extremely busy person. You know, you a uh, busy educator, you have as Kristen said in the introduction, you've been a long time Ignatian educator. And over the course of your research of completing your, your dissertation, uh, you served as a president and a senior leader, now a principal, a mom, you know, you're, you're doing it all. How in the world did you manage to be a doctoral student during all of this and, and get to the point where you're able to share this research? 
Yeah. Um, yes, I have a really great team. I mean, and and the, when I say team, I mean my family, right? And and those at work that support me. You know, my family was extraordinarily supportive. Um, my husband in particular, my mother, bless her heart, um, for stepping in and, uh, you know, things like picking up the kids, feeding the kids, um, all, all of that wonderful stuff I was enormously grateful for. Um, my work knew this was really important to me. And so I'm enormously grateful for the number of people that that made space and that held space for me as I was doing this work. It took five years. Um, it was five excellent years. As my advisor said when I started, uh, she said, you know, time has a way of stretching. And I'm like, it does, but let's be real, right? Uh, I haven't watched TV in many years. Um, I, I don't have hobbies. Uh, there's a, a long list of books on my phone that I'm, you know, I've been holding for five years saying when I'm done, I'm going to read these books. Uh, so I have a lot of catching up to do, but, um, and I'm excited to, to have started some of that over Christmas break. I like read my first book for pleasure. It was wonderful. Oh, isn't it terrific? But, and you did it. You have the sense of satisfaction and accomplishment that you set your sights on something so big, really, that, you know, many, many people don't, don't even attempt to tackle. So I enjoyed reading your acknowledgements to your study. And I should say the title study, as Kristen uh, mentioned, is 50 years of underrepresented student advocacy at one Jesuit secondary school. And I have it posted on our JSN website. We have been building a practitioner research library, so it's in there for listeners to take a view. But I enjoyed reading your acknowledgments, and and it's interesting that you mentioned your mom. It really struck to me it struck me that you you dedicated your um, your study in part to your mom. I found that to be really beautiful and a reminder that you don't undertake this type of work and the extent of this type of work as a as a full time educator without it really feeling. Uh, deep in your heart and kind of very personal connection to the work. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to try not to cry here. Uh, whenever we <laughs> talk about my mom, I'm going to try not to cry. You know, she, her journey has deeply informed my work in education, right? And, and my own journey as well, right? But as I note uh, in the beginning, you know, my my mom grew up in in aching poverty in Mexico. And my grandfather, rest his soul, uh, when she was nine years old, said, well, you have enough education for a girl. So, you know, we're going to pull you out and your brothers can go to school. And so now you need to honestly go to work and help the family. And uh, that injustice has stayed with her for, you know, she's however old my mother is, I won't say, right? <laughs> but stayed with her for her entire life. And that injustice has stayed with me as well. Um, and so, so much of what I do is is fueled by this desire for educational opportunity for everyone, and in particular, educational opportunity for kids that are marginalized or or seen as you know as not the norm. Uh, I shouldn't say it that way, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Like they're for my mother, it, you know, my my grandfather centered the men, and so as a woman, she wasn't going to receive the same privileges and benefits that that they would, and so and that's not fair. So that's that's where a lot of my work comes from is making sure that everyone has the same uh, they deserve the same rights, benefits uh, and access and and making sure that all kids have that. You can you can feel the personal connection in your in your study. You know, I think that's the it's the difference to me of what I am drawn to of research that kind of might end up sitting on a shelf somewhere and not necessarily utilized. And then something that feels real, feels connected. It feels so applicable to our schools today, to the educators in them and, and especially to the kids in them. So mm -hmm. I thought that was that was just a terrific start um, that really really uh, struck me as important. 
you know, you, you talk about identifying, imagining, and implementing support for marginalized students. I think that was one of the lines that resonated so deeply. So what, what drew you to this topic? You know, what, what uh, drew you to the topic of exploring the support of marginalized students and, and ultimately shaping school culture? Yeah, I was super interested in this concept that I read about um, called that that holds that minoritized students are welcomed outsiders. Right. This idea that um, we welcome kids. And I've had this experience in my own life as well. uh, My own uh, high school experience, not at a Jesuit school, uh, unfortunately, but um, at a private school. And also, again, this is not uncommon that that we we welcome communities in and say, please, 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 you know, we want you to be a part of our community. Uh, But then uh, hearing so many students and alums and families say, and yet they felt that they never quite uh, made it inside, right? And and so for me, I started with the premise that, you know, Catholic and Jesuit schools, we hold ourselves to a standard of being a community. You know, we value inclusion and we have explicit social justice missions, you know, but my personal experience, uh, as well as the research tells me that students that are not of the norm in a community, and again, I don't love that phrase, but, you know, kids that maybe they're not white or they're not heterosexual or they're not upper middle class or they're marginalized by gender, right? These kids are being marginalized and excluded on our campuses. So then I was like, all right, so this is this is a situation that's happening. But for decades, we've had adults in our schools who've consistently supported underrepresented students within traditional Catholic and Jesuit school settings. And our schools have changed as a result of their work. And so for me, I said, there's so much we can learn from their historical work so that the Catholic and Jesuit schools of today can be more effective advocates for marginalized youth. I love that language of helping kids navigate the process of making it inside, making it inside. I don't I don't think I have heard it articulated in that way. And that I think that just speaks to the experience of so many educators working with kids, so many kids so many parents that are out there. So so tell us tell us about your findings. Walk us through with all of this context. Walk us through the major themes. So listener beware, I can talk about this all day. I will um uh, bear with me. I'm going to tell you uh what I did and what I found. Ask any researcher uh you know to tell you about their study and they're like pull up a chair. So what I was exploring was the origins of support structures for racial, economic, sexual, and gender minority youth. I was looking at a long established Catholic Jesuit school in the Western United States. And what I was trying to answer was, how do you even start supporting minoritized youth within a traditional school? So I looked at one school's journey over 50 years by interviewing five key participants. And these folks were the founders of support structures for minoritized youth. So things like they started the affinity groups for Latino, Black, Asian, and gay students. Uh, One of my participants also was a key supporter of a program for low-income students. And these were the folks that started these groups when there wasn't any group there. Um, I also interviewed three long-term employees who spoke about how the school changed over time. So everyone in my study had been there a long time, from like 21 to 43 years, and all of them were lay people. And that was really important to me because I wanted to identify folks that didn't have the status or the protection of the collar. I wanted to understand how everyday educators could affect change in their school. So what did I find out? So the first thing, um, there are four findings. And the first finding I called the narrative of selective sight. The school struggled to understand why specific supports for minoritized youth were necessary, 
yet they had a deep commitment to social justice efforts abroad. So let me tell you what it sounded like, right? On campus, questions arose such as, why are the Black students asking for this special attention? Or why do we have to do all these things if things are not broken? But at the same time, schools, this school was deepening their social justice work abroad. So around this time, we saw immersion programs emerge that took uh, students to other countries. The second finding revolved around the school's requirement for legitimacy around advocacy work. So what does that mean? Who led the work mattered to the organization. They needed to be credible, accomplished, and deeply respected in the community. It was interesting that advocates felt they could not push the school farther than it was willing to go. And that's that's connected to the theoretical framework called colorblind racism. And this framework explains this for me, it explains the central tension I see in Catholic and Jesuit schools, how we can softly accept and perpetuate a reality where minoritized people in our community are not fully accepted, yet we still promote an overall vision of inclusion and acceptance. The third finding, I'm halfway there, the third, the third finding revealed that some groups were more readily accepted than others. So for example, support structures for Black and Latino students were questioned and challenged, while support structures for Asian and gay students were less controversial. So what did that sound like? For example, the responses to the gay straight organization when it came about revealed a sense of folks saying, it's about time, or folks saying, I'm thrilled to see this organization. And this was a really interesting dichotomy compared to the narrative of why do we need these groups for black and brown students? The final finding was about how the affinity groups got started. And at the end of the day, strategy was key. Most of the affinity groups emerged organically, but no one was asking permission of admin. No one was creating a task force to explore if we can start this group or that one. No one was asking the board about what they thought. So folks were strategic in how they proceeded, but they honestly just did the work. And there's a really interesting example that I want to dig into, which is the origins of uh, the gay straight organization as an example of intentional strategy. Uh, the founder was, and she described herself uh, as straight, white, unassuming, middle-aged woman. She went straight to the diocese to get the bishop uh, on board, to, to secure the bishop's permission. Let's be, let's be honest, right? She went uh, to the diocese and met with staff. Uh, to secure permission from the bishop. But here's what's interesting. She did this even before she came to her own administration. So she met with the diocesan staff, secured the approval from the bishop, and then went to the principal and said, this is what's happened and therefore I'm I'm gonna begin this group, which was incredible. Every step along the way was intentional for these groups. And so from beginning to end, very strategic. So at the end of the day, these leaders created support programs simply because it was the right thing to do. And they change the lives of generations of students as a result. You know, what's so clever about your methodology. So one of the things that I think a lot about when it comes to traditional Jesuit schools is just that tradition. You know, we have so much history, so much tradition. There's so much kind of work through and unpack as you seek to move forward. Your research points to kind of the ideal of learning from the past. And it, it went back how many years did it's 50 years, right? But 50 years. Yeah. 50 years. Um, but but learning from that, uh, but then it's still so all relevant today. I mean, everything that you just said, which happened in the past, could very well be happening right now as we think through just the current world that our schools are immersed in of culture wars and and all of the the challenges in in broader society. So to think about how that history formed and kind of transformed the the origins of the support structures, it's really remarkable. 
Yeah, I think there's there's a lot to learn from our history. And to your point, Kristen, it's still very real and relevant for our schools today, right? Um, demographic change is happening in all of our schools. Uh, for some of our schools, uh, it has happened 40, 50 years ago. For some of our schools, it's happening now. For some of our schools, it's coming, right? Uh, the nation's changing. The the students that are coming into our schools are changing. And, and we're seeing a mix of uh, racial identities, economic identities, gender identities. And so we are called... I've always said as Jesuit schools, we are called to the frontiers. And what are the frontiers in our own schools that we need to take a look at? What do you make of the difference of the Asian and sexuality support groups to the comment that you said about, you know, why do we need these groups for black and brown students? Like, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I thought long and hard about that. I I suspect that because in particular for, I would say, our our gay students and our, and again, I I want to point out, I'm using the word gay students and I recognize that um, that's kind of the language of then, right? I recognize that when I, when I talk of uh, the LGBTQIA plus community now, um, it's, there's a broader, there's a broader sense there, a broader understanding there. I think because some of those, when groups can cut across race and class, I think there's a different, I think there's a different mix. There's a different approach there. I also suspect that there were a lot of allies. There's a lot of allies for all of these groups as well, right? But in particular, when our gay straight faith sharing community, which is what it was, it was the faith sharing community, um, emerged, allies were very vocal and very visible. One of the findings was that we had uh, more faculty than students uh, in the gay straight faith sharing community at first, uh, because there was such tremendous support um, from the faculty and staff side. Um, and then the group made a decision and said, all right, so this is for the students. And so faculty, we're going to take a step back and, and let the kids, you know, assume direction of the of the group. And with the the Asian community, you know, I I hypothesize that perhaps there was kind of this umbrella of the model minority myth that was at play there. Um, I, again, I'm not quite sure, but those were kind of the hypotheses that I came up with. Now, were the groups that were explored or that were uh, shared, you know, the experiences of forming them, were most of them faith sharing groups? One of the things I was interested in with your study, considering it, you know, takes place again in a traditional Jesuit school. um, What is it about Ignatian spirituality that like connects to this conversation or that makes this these support structures possible? Is there something there with the with the faith sharing group? Yeah, so um, so I noted in my work that many of the groups actually had to begin as a faith sharing group, um, which again for me tied back to that need for legitimacy, um, the need to legitimize themselves by connecting and being associated with the school's religious identity, as say you know a little bit of cover, uh, if you will. So I, I found that very interesting, and and it was also there's an interesting piece about when uh, the Latino uh, group decided to stop being a faith sharing group, how that shifted the perception of that group within the community. So that was another really interesting and kind of notable data point that I had in there. You know, but but ultimately this project and the work of these change makers over decades, it's yeah. all rooted in Cura Personalis, right? It's all rooted in caring for the person, seeing the kid completely for who they are, their whole self, racial identity, economic identity, gender identity, just saying, kid, you know, I'm going to walk with you. 
I'm going to walk with you and, and I'm going to help you carry whatever it is that you're carrying and I'm going to create a space for you. That's profound. It's deeply, deeply Ignatian, deeply Christian, deeply human, right? I also just want to point out if I can direct people, I, I, whenever I have an opportunity to, to tell folks, I encourage you to read something. I'm going to tell you now, right? Uh-huh. You know, I encourage you to read. I, I was thrilled to read things like uh, Pedro Rupe's The Interracial Apostolate from 1967. I mean, prophetic, mm-hmm. prophetic work in 1967, right? Talking about we need to, our, our ministries need to move beyond token representation and we need to you know work towards racial justice talk about something that still resonates today i mean it's extraordinary obviously his 1973 men for other speech you know documents from the 32nd general congregation you know that really call us towards justice and all of us should know and and be reading uh the recent revision to domain five in the jesuit schools network standard and benchmarks um they're the JSN, the domain five is calling us specifically towards racial justice and giving us actionable things to think about. And that's extraordinary. Um, it's it's really just extraordinary to see those, those works being disseminated and, and embraced by the society. And again, learning from the past as we move to the, towards the future. The thing that I really love about your study is it's so respectful to the work of the everyday educator of the like exactly what you just said, that you're walking with kids, you're really journeying with them, with who they are as a person. I mean, it's our work as Ignatian educators. It's so much beyond the mastery of math and physics and chemistry and, you know, all the very important stuff that we do. But the the idea of really caring and supporting for kids, I I think this, it just shows all of the in-between work that happens that's really not written down anywhere. It's not necessarily in anyone's job description or role description, but like talk about change makers. I mean, this is who's this is the stuff that kids remember as they leave. And I think it's it's so respectful mm, of thank all you of that. that. Yeah. It, you know, one thing, so I'm curious with your role as a leader, you know, when you do hear stories of someone going to the bishop with before telling the leader, like, how do you how do you reconcile all that it makes me that does make you shudder a little bit. Right. I mean, although you get I very clearly understand the spirit of it. Um, but but like, how do you make sense of that in today's world, today's dotting the I's and crossing the T's world? That's a that's a great question. And I have to think about that. Right. I know, me too. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, you know, I think ultimately, if if I can if I can make it personal, right, uh, about my own leadership style, and if I can also kind of project to the kind of leaders that I think Jesuit schools want, and and again, when I say leaders, I mean you know change makers, right? When it feels right, when we're on the right side of justice, then we we need to act accordingly, and and yes, that puts us in spaces where we're uncomfortable or that that perhaps pushes us into spaces we might not be ready to step into. But, you know, at the heart of it, my hope, my deepest desire is that schools, ministries, leaders and teachers, everybody, like that we can dialogue. If we can sit down and understand each other and kind of get out of our own way sometimes, right? You know, sometimes, but the process is, or, oh, but you should have told me, or, oh, but what is somebody going to think? How about we just listen, right? And again, that's um, again that's deeply Ignatian to to listen to one another and dialogue. But you know, our schools 
schools are busy places and uh, and we have lots of things to do. But I think one of the most important things we can do is to sit down and really understand what is your experience here? Teacher, student, leader, parent, community member. Are there spaces where we need to grow and, and how do we hear that and respond? Well, and then that speaks to the adults modeling what we hope to see amongst the kids. You know, mm-hmm. don't you wonder if teachers and leaders really do view themselves as change makers? I mean, from it, when you take kind of the 30,000 foot view and step out of the experiences of the past couple of years, the crazy experiences before, during and after the pandemic. You know, think about what schools have wrestled with just the 24 hour news cycle and the Me Too movement, the Kavanaugh hearings, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, the Trump era, you know, whatever your whatever your views and opinions are. But just everything that has occurred in our world that trickles down to the schools and again, to teachers and leaders and staff members who are working with and for kids and with and for one another trying to navigate all of that. Your your research, again, just it speaks to the power of the educator as a change maker. Absolutely. I mean, one of the pieces that uh, one of the research questions I had was whether kind of all those external societal factors that you just listed uh, in our more recent history, is that are those the forces that change schools? And what was interesting was that I found that it wasn't right. Um, but what but where those factors did shape experiences of kids was that kids come into our classrooms, they come into our offices with those things on their mind and they want to process and they have questions. And what a beautiful thing when our schools can create space, when our classrooms, right? When when people, everyday people create space for kids to process and unpack the, the most pressing issues of our times. Because, you know, in this generation, these issues are coming at them from their phones, from their devices. It's no longer, you know, did you hear about this and you have to read it in the paper or you have to go look something up. It's being pushed to them. Um, and that's, that's a lot and it can be overwhelming and confusing. And so, you know, we heard time and time again, one, we hear from our alums, but also in this research project, the, you know, the gratitude of, of folks that said, you know, kids were just appreciative that we could talk about these things. And that's, enormously powerful. Those memories, those those moments stay with kids for the rest of their lives. I hear it from, from all of us, hear it from alums uh, in Jesuit schools across the land, that when we do our work that way, it stays with them. No, and it speaks so directly, so clearly to what is special about our particular way of education. You know, I always think about hiring, like in my schools, and we used to always say, you know, you're looking for someone who really understands that the work that you do during the day in the classroom is extremely important, but it's the work that you do after 3 p.m., you know, or whatever the time is that that really can make a difference. And it's someone who who understands that it's not that is not an easy lift. Um, But again, it's so it's so respectful to all of the hard work that our teachers and leaders are engaged in. So what do you think about how how can you encourage now schools to learn from these findings? Like, what do we, if I'm listening to this for the very first time, what do I walk away with? Yeah, uh, I think if there's one piece of advice, and there's never only one piece of advice, but I think for for all of our Catholic and Jesuit schools, we 
when we think of how we can support racial, economic, sexual, and gender minority youth on our, at our schools, we have to meet this opportunity head on. And I use the word opportunity very intentionally. This is an opportunity for us to work uh, to work and walk with young people. Um, and that is what we are called to do every day, right? And so, so we have an opportunity to lead. We have an opportunity to, to change our schools, to create space for kids. You know, I think at all levels of our schools, you know, from the board to, to teachers, counselors, uh, staff, right? We have to get to know one another. Uh, I encourage teachers, counselors, staff, everybody, you know, show up at those cocktail parties uh, that, you know, the board members are there and get to know them. Right. Get to know them and and talk to them about your experiences. They want to know what's happening in our schools. And so, you know, we uh, relationships are at the heart of that. Right. For school leadership. Right. We we have to be proactive and not reactive. And we have to act now because folks are no longer willing to wait 40 years for change. Um, So if if schools don't, you know, leaders, if you don't have a diverse faculty, then start hiring with intention. Right. Uh, Folks are out there. Um, if you do not have a diverse student body or you want to increase your diversity, then, you know, find partners, uh, do the work, uh, begin to move the needle. And if if your school doesn't have a centralized DEIB office, please, 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 please uh, establish one. You know, a DEIB office isn't a panacea. It's not it's not the end all be all, but it's a start um, and it'll help the institution to return to its DEI lens uh, as decisions are made. And, you know, and, and teachers, oh, they're the heart of our organizations and they do so much. They walk with kids and they walk with one another, you know, so teachers can look at their curriculum, their instruction, they can establish or support affinity groups. And let's begin to shift the conversation from a broad based understanding of diversity to a focused conversation about race and class. And I really encourage us to start with race and class because vague conversations about difference are not going to get us anywhere anymore. I mean, I've got I've got a lot of things, but I think that's the places where I would start. Um, how do we see our community? How do we hear our community? Um, and how do we walk with our community? Those are the things that that I think about that everyone can be a part of. And that frame of this conversation, and it's so much bigger than a conversation, but this is being an opportunity. And it's ultimately what you just described is an opportunity to meet our mission head on. Mm-hmm. You know, to meet in real and meaningful ways why we all have chosen to work in Jesuit schools, you know, right. and and um, I think for many people, uh, for many, hopefully, folks who are listening to this conversation is one of the key reasons why we have chosen to be an Ignatian educator and why we, you know, kind of commit our own path to that. So it's a huge challenge, but look at the learning that can come from, again, one school learning from its history, one school looking back, seeing how things started. And you're absolutely right to say, you know, we don't have another 40 or 50 years. You, you don't want to be the school that's having this conversation in 50 years. If you're if this is just getting started in your particular setting and provinces and geographies and types of schools, everyone is different. But look at the learning that can come from another one of our fellow schools. So you really have contributed and in the language that you said, move the needle forward uh, when it comes to scholarship on on Jesuit education, modern day Jesuit education. So we have to thank you for uh, for all of this work. I mean there's so much to learn and I feel 
you know, both challenged and inspired to kind of understand even more uh, moving forward. But we started our conversation, uh, as Kristen explained, kind of the, the gist of your of your study, maybe the, the elevator pitch of sorts, but thinking about what true inclusion looks like. And that is such a simple way to say something that is so uh, messy and complex. But I think that's really where we might lead the conversation. What does true inclusion look like within each of our settings? Um, your work, again, brings that question very much to life. So we thank you for sharing it with us. Kristen, thank you so much for this opportunity to to share my musings, my thoughts, uh, you know, my work uh, with the world, with uh, with the Jesuit Schools Network. Uh, before I sign off, I, I can't uh, leave without giving a huge shout out uh, to the University of San Francisco and the McGrath Institute for Jesuit Catholic Education, which which allowed me to do this work and uh, and supported me along the way. So enormous gratitude uh, to USF and the team there. Um, I could not have done this work without them. Also, thank you, Kristen, for that, the scholarship repository, which is tremendous. <laughs> great. I love reading through um, various dissertations of my colleagues at Jesuit schools across the land. You know, I, I, I'm the nerdiest of the nerds, but I, I loved reading through um, people's work. There's so much good work out there that folks have done and uh, folks asking excellent questions. Again, all of us uh, who who do this work, I count myself as one of them, have a deep, deep love for Jesuit schools and want them to be want them to be better, right? And and want to see how much more we can lean into our mission and how much more we can bring our students closer to full inclusion, as you say, and uh, just being their full selves on campus every day. You know, I had so I've had so much fun over the years putting together that practitioner research library because to me it I look through the studies I look through the names of folks like us around our schools who are brave enough to take on you know full-time doctoral work part-time doctoral work while you're a full-time worker in one of our schools and look the uh, look at the good that can come from an educator who loves his or her profession wanting to go deeper in something. It really is. It's terrific. And I can remember, Sonia, talking to you very early on, like before the <laughs> pandemic, when you were batting around these ideas, you know, and look at what look at what's come of it. It's really terrific. And I would echo um, the University of San Francisco. Uh, USF has been a terrific partner for many years with the JSN. And uh, so it's it's wonderful to get to shine a light here. So thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Grateful for the opportunity and uh, uh, enormously grateful for this time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ignatian Inquiry podcast. Additional information on Dr. Ariola's research, along with her contact information, can be found on JSN's website at www.jesuitschoolsnetwork.org slash ignatian-inquiry-podcast. The Ignatian Inquiry Podcast is hosted by Kristen Smith and Dr. Kristen Ross Cully. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Kristen Smith and directed by Dr. Kristen Ross Cully. To learn more about the Jesuit Schools Network, please visit www.jesuitschoolsnetwork.org. Stay curious and set the world on fire.